0: Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read. I'm writing this from my mother's apartment.
1: It's called Orange. All I could think about was being written into her life story. She made up a story back What it. was the I inspiration thought. for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. Now. What was the I genesis? Mm-hmm. I, I, I used to be a almost you. dependent Dear on be. voice. A
0: speaker in a I want to talk coffee. to you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and the conversation starts. Hello. Welcome to Off the Page a podcast of stories, essays, and poetry from the Stanford University writing community. Each episode, a Stanford author will read from their work and talk with us about their craft and process. In this episode, Ed Porter will read his short story, Why Wait, Why Bother? Edward Porter's writing has appeared in Glimmer Train, The Gettysburg Review, The Hudson Review, Colorado Review, Catamaran, Barrel House, Best New American Voices, and elsewhere. A native of New York City, he earned an MFA from Warren Wilson College and a PhD from the University of Houston, and has been awarded fellowships at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, the McDowell Colony, and Stanford University, where he was recently a Stegner Fellow. He lives in Oakland and is currently a Jones lecturer at Stanford.
0: Why wait? Why bother? Stephanie Kamkowski had been screening carry-on at Kennedy Airport for three years when someone said an Arab guy had come on to the day shift. Sitting in the hoolahans before work, she thought she had him pegged. A dark-haired, dark-complexioned, middle-aged man of slender build, standing at the breakfast buffet wearing a Yankees cap. He frowned at the chafing dishes of ham, bacon, and eggs, and placed an orange and a yogurt on his plastic tray. Later, she saw him in the break room and at the boarding security line for Delta, observing. He ate by himself and disappeared after each shift. Freddy Novak, the shift supervisor, called him E-mad, but the rest of them called him the Arab guy. He was different, no doubt about it. She hadn't known any Arabs before. It put you on your guard, and at the same time, she felt bad because, as far as she knew... He was just a normal guy. She was a robust, if slightly doughy, 41. Never married. Never moved out of Greenpoint. She'd meant to do those things, but hadn't. She'd gone with neighborhood boys over the years. Serious Polish boys who were friends of family. She saw through them all. Their tough guy surface, unable to hide how they'd been spoiled and wounded by their mothers. And each time the subject of marriage came up, She felt a noose tighten around her neck and backed out. Her own mother had told her, Any man is the right man. It's not the guy. It's what you make of him. And people called her an old maid behind her back. When her mother got cancer, Stephanie took over the family hardware store and managed the doctors. She didn't move in, though, to cook pierogies and change linens, but instead hired a Jamaican nurse. That had also been cause for gossip. After her mother passed, there was the lack of a lack. She sold the hardware store to pay off the medical bills, but she had her mother's place on Java Street free and clear and no obvious need for a man. At Sunday brunch in Coney Island with her cousin Stosh, his nine-year-old son asked if she didn't have a husband because she was gay. She told Stosh, I feel like I'm caught between why wait and why bother. At least my days are my own. She needed a job, and Stash had suggested the TSA, where he had friends. Do something for America. Hey, if it wasn't for Kosciuszko, there wouldn't be an America, right? Most TSA complained the job was boring. But for her, it touched a secret streak of voyeurism. Mostly it was the same thing over and over, but there were surprises. The businessman with bras and high heels in his rollaway the famous fashion model traveling with a vibrator in romance novels. She liked to think about all these people going and coming with lives you could probably never imagine. Monday morning, they were outside drinking coffee in the March cold. All right, who wants the Arab guy? Freddie Novak eeny-meenied a thick finger over them like a schoolyard bully. I'll take him, she said. Mid-morning, she saw a cosmetic bottle and told Imad, Bag check. She ran the belt to tee it up. The passenger was a steel-haired man in a Brooks Brothers suit who rolled his eyes as Imad unzipped his black leather overnight bag and felt around until he pulled out a cut glass bottle. That's my aftershave. Jesus Christ, are you kidding me? There is a limit of three ounces for any liquid container carried aboard the aircraft. Fine, throw it out. My plane is leaving in ten minutes. Please step around the belt and come over to the area behind me. I need to check your identification. The man dropped his head in disgust and did what he was told, but as he offered his passport, he said, I want to know who checked you. He mad heads If you have a complaint, you can wait in the detention area until a supervisor is available. No, I didn't say anything. Please, just let me on my plane. But after the man got his shoes and belt back on, and was walking away from the security area, he said over his shoulder, Unbelievable. It made you think what Imad had to put up with. Afterwards, Stephanie watched him drink tea in the break room. She clocked he wasn't bad-looking. His eyes were soft and intelligent, though his shoulders stooped as if he were carrying something. Over the course of the next few weeks, she made small talk and learned he lived alone in Astoria, could put on a Brooklyn accent, and was reading Gone with the Wind. She learned to pronounce his name Imad, and with a little prodding, she got him to call her Stephanie instead of Miss Kamkowski. Alone at home on Saturday night, she watched Lawrence of Arabia on TV and wondered if he had grown up in a place like that. with sand, minarets, headscarves, and camels. She guessed not, probably things were different now in that part of the world. She ran into him in McCarran Park one Sunday afternoon. It was the first brilliant weekend of spring, with the high sun and dry warm air, and the park was a swarming ant colony of colored T-shirts that echoed with thumping hip-hop music. She was watching Stasha's son play Little League baseball when Ahmad appeared on the third base line in his Yankees cap with a camera over his neck. She waved until she caught his attention and he came over. "'Do you have a side to root for?' he asked. "'The one in the green, the mermaids.' "'Mermaids is the name for a boys' team? "'Mermaids are an all-purpose mascot for Coney Island. "'There's even a Mermaid's Day parade. "'Don't make fun of it. "'Some of these guys get out of control. "'That's my cousin over there screaming at a ten-year-old.' "'Please.' This is also tame compared to football, to soccer. Here you say, kill the umpire. Where I come from, we do it. Their conversation was awkward, but not badly so. Watching the game occupied the pauses while they thought of things to say. She admired his heavy Nikon with his long lens, and he told her photography was a hobby. He'd been taking pictures of the domed Russian cathedral across from the park. When the game was over... She introduced Ahmad to Stosh and his two sons. Stash had the short, stocky build of so many sons of Poland and Brooklyn. He claimed it was because they were all descended from shipyard workers who had to be strong and work in cramped spaces. He's TSA. I just stumbled into him, she said. Keeping those shampoo bombs off the plane. Stash flipped a baseball at Ahmad, who caught it by reflex. There you go. You got to earn that Yankees cap. After Stash packed gloves, bats, and children into his minivan, she felt at loose ends. She didn't want to go home. She didn't want to impose. Ahmad smiled and fiddled with the lens cap to his camera. Family is important to you, he said. That's good. They walked out of the park and headed down Bedford Avenue, under the shade of heavy sycamores with mottled trunks. These trees were old when I was a kid. We could probably find an S.K. Heart's somebody carved on one of these things. That must be nice to have so much memory around you. Dad's old hardware store is down the street, but now that it's not ours, I pretend it doesn't exist. As a kid, she'd run around on sawdust-covered floors, hiding from her brothers behind the racks of open-tin scoops spilling with nails, bolts, and screws. Later, she would liked being around the guys there and talking to the customers about... Bathroom tile and light fixtures. It's not like my dad is hiding back somewhere in the store. I get to talk to him if I find him. If well, I thought about that stuff all the time, I'd drive myself nuts. Yes, you would, he said seriously. They had an early dinner at a sandwich shop filled with 20 somethings and their laptops. What kind of food is this? asked Imad, holding up his vegetarian panini. Is it Italian? It's yuppie. Are there Arab yuppies? I wouldn't know. I'm not Arabic. I'm Egyptian, he said. But his eyes were friendly and forgiving. He'd been in America for 15 years. His family was still in Egypt, including an ex-wife and two daughters. But he had no contact with them. He was, he said, a dime-store political exile. As a medical student in Cairo, he'd written an article critical of government health policy for a fringe journal. Luckily, he'd been at a conference in Boston when everyone connected with the journal was arrested. He'd been born in America. His father had worked for an oil company, so immigration couldn't send him back. But it had been impossible to finish his studies and become a doctor here. He had no money, and his academic records were literally rotting in a prison. He had bussed tables, driven a taxi, done any number of things. And all that time, he hadn't seen his children once and didn't expect to again. As far as his wife's family was concerned, he was dead. He and his wife had divorced at a distance, and she was remarried now. He said all this as if it were a sad but not particularly important story that had happened to someone else. He insisted on paying for dinner... And she let him, and they walked back up Bedford without discussing where they were going. He said he'd been doing all right for the last few years, working for a real estate broker, showing cheap apartments and flushing to immigrants from the Middle East. Then the economy had gone south and he'd been let go. The TSA had been the best he could do. The sky darkened, the air grew cool, and wind blew discarded picnic plates down the street. She turned left on Manhattan Avenue. And for a while, they didn't talk. Then he stopped in the shadow of a hanging pawnbroker sign and said, I didn't mean to show you this, but I feel wrong about it. He turned the camera on, clicked through its menu, and showed her the screen. It was a picture of her in the park. Even in the display, she could see he was a good photographer. He had caught her in a fine focus The background blurred, her face suspended in a halo of colored light. He advanced the camera. There were more of her, all shot in the same clarity that lifted her out of the crowd. They had been taken before she'd spotted him. At first, I thought I'd snap one and hand a print to you at work for a joke. Then I took more, and before I knew it, I was embarrassed. Now I'm afraid you'll be angry. He walked her to her apartment, and she worldlessly unlocked the door and held it open. He hesitated, both surprise and desire apparent in his face. There was something else, too, a sadness, a sense of resignation. She turned and went up the stairs, and after a moment heard him follow. Later, they went up on her roof with a blanket and cigarettes. They sat holding hands, their backs against the parapet, under a moonless sky buzzing with activity. Low clouds rushed east, their bellies yellowed from the city's glow. To the south, a blimp floated past the Williamsburg Savings Bank Tower, flashing green and red, as searchlights below reached up towards it from some event in Prospect Park. Behind them, a jetliner rumbled in descent towards LaGuardia. Another was coming in over their heads the other way, arcing up into the sky on a slow turn to the north. I've never done that before, he said. Not that, I mean, not so soon. My wife and I were married first. I don't usually do this either. No? His voice was neutral, unconvinced, and she was suddenly afraid, unsure what he might think of her. She didn't know what value he placed on sex. Weren't Arabs, Egyptians, conservative about those things? In Greenpoint, there were men who felt they owned you once they slept with him and could treat you however they liked. A quick trip from princess to waitress. There were others who froze up afterwards as if they'd seen a Medusa. Have you seen many women? I mean, since you... Came here? She was suddenly afraid of being rude. I see them on the street, on the subway, on TV. No, not many. I thought I would marry an Egyptian woman here, but without a proper job. For a while, with a real estate business, I thought something was possible. Oh, or did you mean, are you the first American woman I've slept with? What do you say? Close enough. Anyway, neither of us can say we're any worse than the other. His shoulders slumped as if the weight on them had grown. She said with some heat, didn't you like it? Yes. Very much. In America, if both people want to, it's nobody else's business. I won't argue with you. He laced his fingers with her. Her building was high enough to catch a partial view of the Manhattan skyline. An uneven, glittering set of spikes strung above the dark housetops in front of them. A luminous barcode for the entire continent. The commotion in the sky picked up as helicopters joined the blimp. Another plane crooned down the river. She remembered what the view was like from up there. The horizon-wide net of yellow-orange glitter. She and he were tiny, dark figures in the sprawling mass of electrified boxes surrounded by millions like them, to say nothing of others hurtling through the sky towards or away from them, bound up across an unthinkably large sphere speckled with other cities. All these people had feelings and lives just like hers. But who could tally so much heartache, affection, resentment, confusion, boredom, pleasure. You were forever cut off from knowing more than the thinnest pairing of such an enormous fruit. In the face of that exhausting mass and energy, all of it bound to live on past what anyone could know, to believe that your own life had weight, required an act of faith. What would it mean to be yourself if no one noticed? A few months later, they were engaged. The turning point had been a visit to Stosh and his family out at Coney Island. They lived in one of those massive old brown brick apartment buildings near Astraland. Stosh's plump wife, Tekla, filled them full of meat and pastry and gave Stephanie the unconscious, pitying look she always did, the one that said that, though she was ten years Stephanie's junior, she was already three children ahead. Afterwards, Tekla stayed home with the baby and the rest of them went on along the boardwalk under a sun fit for a lobster bake. The air was ripe with the odor of hot dogs. She glanced west out of childhood reflex, and that old part of her mind was yet again surprised not to see the Twin Towers. Why are you wearing a Yankees cap? Abe, the nine-year-old, wanted to know. He had recently taken to eyeing Stephanie's breasts in a way that made her uncomfortable. How can you be a Yankee? Don't be rude, Stash said, swatting him on the back of the head. Stash owned a quarter share in a boardwalk attraction, a museum of oddities. Abe and the six-year-old Willie dragged them into the Hall of Horrors, people with wax figures of people like Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, and Charles Manson. This one's new, Stash pointed at the bust of Osama bin Laden. Imad studied it for a moment. It's very nice. When do you get George Bush? Funny guy, Stash said. There was also an old-fashioned fun house, with one mirror that made you fat and another made you skinny. There was also a device, a series of prisms and mirrors that showed two people's faces as a composite. She and Imad placed their chins on the felt rests and looked into the glass that showed a dark-skinned, androgynous elf with blonde hair and violet eyes. Imad was amused. Is this me as beautiful, or you as ugly? Imad had brought a new soccer ball, and on the beach, he took charge of the boys and started drilling them with it. He could keep the ball in the air almost endlessly, and Abe and Willie were hypnotized as he showed off, tapping it from his knee to his forehead and back. While well, she and Stash watched, she told him Imad's history in as much detail as she could, but the act of retelling brought home what an awful story it was. Imad could joke about what had happened. She could not. He'd lost his children forever because he told the truth. There was nothing funny about that. I get it, he's Nelson Mandela, Stash said. He still throws underhand. Remember, I threw him a ball and he threw it back underhand? So? We throw overhand in this country. I got nothing against him. I'm just saying, before you get all sweet on him, remember, he's not a regular guy, that's all. She realized then that was the point. She hadn't wanted any of the regular guys. Hadn't wanted what she was supposed to want. And hadn't wanted to become a tecla. There goes money, Stosh said. Now I'm going to have to buy them a soccer ball and shin pads but the ball, of course, was a gift from Ahmad to the boys. He proposed in the fall and suggested a year's engagement that was perceptive of him. It would give people like Stosh time to get used to the idea. And as it turned out, engagement was a surprisingly enjoyable state, something worth savoring. People in the neighborhood said she looked ten years younger, and that was exactly how it felt to her. One evening in January... When she came home from grocery shopping, the TV was on and he stood directly in front of it, his body in a state of hypnotic arrest. He didn't acknowledge her at first, and then when she pointedly said hello, he broke out of his trance, turned to her and said, "There's going to be a revolution. They watched the news together that night and many other nights following, hands held between them watched the satellite relayed images of people throwing rocks, police beating protesters with black batons, fires, smoke, tear gas. At first, she asked him to explain each new development, but soon they watched in a silence punctuated only by his occasional remark, That's near the hospital. Or, I passed by there every day on my way to school, spoken more for himself than for her. Finally, the military came with tanks and trucks, and there was cheering and crowds waving white banners. It had to be stressful for him, overwhelming. She couldn't even imagine what a parallel might be in her own life, and she quickly gave up the idea that there was anything she could do or say beyond accepting that he was in turmoil. As he grew quieter and more distant, she left him more room to withdraw into. He spent long hours online, in contact with people he hadn't heard from in over a decade. At night, he would lie next to her for half an hour, perhaps until he thought she was asleep, and then get up and go to the computer to message with his Cairo friends, who were, of course, in the middle of their day. Sometimes he just paced in the darkness, sitting up in bed, She could look down the hall to see his shadow pass and repass the living room window like a slow pendulum. One time she awoke and he wasn't in the apartment. She found him on the roof. It was raining lightly, and he had no umbrella or raincoat. The view was shrouded by mist that glowed a sulfuric yellow from the street lamps. It was oddly still. The only sounds were the rushing plash of a car passing down Java Street, and the quiet, hollow plinking of raindrops on the glass skylight over the stairwell. He was soaked. I love you, he said. I love you, too. She hoped he might have something else to share, but he didn't. Toward the end of a long, eventless, and exhausting day at work, she saw her mother's head in a suitcase. She leered at Stephanie in vindication as if to say, You should have taken your chances when you could. Stephanie stared back until her mother turned back into a styrofoam wig display in the Samsonite case of an overweight salesman. Imad took her out to dinner in Manhattan to an expensive place in Union Square with high ceilings and white plaster columns. Perhaps he didn't want to be alone with her if she made a scene. Or perhaps it was to soften what he was about to say. Even as they were dressing to go out, he chattered nervously, talking about the election, the movies, and the baseball season. She wore one of her oldest good dresses, a green silk one she was fond of because it was soft and comfortable. and She always felt her best in it. And She wanted to look good, like some queen in an old period movie, arranging her hair before going to the block. She was about to say, let's forget the charade and just have it out here and now, and he came up behind her in the mirror in his black suit and blue shirt his eyes were full of her and he stopped talking the mirror showed she thought that they had already begun to grow like each other in the end they deliberately enjoyed the evening they made small talk about their day or quiet and comfortable with silence they took pleasure with their meal Finally, after the carpaccio and the rock cod and the cappuccino, he took a long pause and said, I bought a ticket for Cairo. I'm not sure when I'm coming back. They were begging for him in Egypt. They wanted him as an educated man, They wanted him for his medical training, no matter how old it was. There were many ways he could help without being an actual doctor. In fact, they needed administrators more than doctors. Anyone who wasn't compromised politically suddenly was in desperate demand. He was amazed and humbled to be wanted, but at the same time, deeply pained and ashamed to be leaving her, even temporarily. And he stressed it was only temporary. He would come back and marry her. But he couldn't say when didn't expect her to like it. She had every right to be angry. She could see, though, couldn't she, that he had to go. She pointed out that he wasn't going to change the country much by himself, that it might be dangerous. She was afraid for a moment that he was going to say something awful about it, being no time for fear, but he frankly admitted that it certainly was dangerous and that he was afraid. Then why do it? My wife's family. They're not so well connected now. I think there is a good chance I will see my children. She had been waiting for that. She had played this moment out in her head over the preceding weeks, and in her scenarios, at this point there are always tears, but it wasn't like that at all. Something hard and distant came into his eyes when he mentioned his children. She had always Expected that some day he would share that part of himself with her. Now she understood that section of his life was cut off from her, and there was a part of him that she would never see. At home, they undressed in silence. While he was brushing his teeth, she pushed the covers off the bed, lit a candle, and lay naked, waiting for him. He came out of the bathroom without his robe, his body golden in the candlelight. Later she said, stay inside me. She gripped his body tightly with her legs to make sure, but clearly he had the same impulse. They'd been using the rhythm method. They both knew she was ovulating. It was deliberate and mutual. Afterward, they lay side by side, close but not touching. Soon he was asleep. The candle flickered on his sensitive thin nose and long forehead, and she pictured those features blending with her own. She'd imagined this moment, too, and thought if it ever came, it would be a wordless rapture, a kind of dream. But she'd never been more awake. She considered the future. He would come back, or he wouldn't. She would get pregnant, or she wouldn't. Of the four lives that implied, three were welcome. She could have the child, or him, or both, or none. She thought again of the size of the world and all the people on it, some lives swept away by events, others spent trying to alter them, How much control did anyone have? His breathing was slow and even. His eyes fluttered under their lids. He was dreaming. She reached across his hip, took him in her hand, and squeezed until she felt an answering pulse. He startled awake and looked at her with such an odd expression that she could not tell if he was pleased, embarrassed, or guilty. Perhaps it was all of them. From a practical point of view, though, it didn't matter. After a moment, he raised up and covered her again.
1: You can read Why Way, Why Bother in full online at the Hudson Review, and it will be available soon as part of the New York Public Library's Subway Library. So, Ed, Mark, thank you for being here on on the page and reading <laughs> your wonderful story, Why Wait, Why Bother, for us.
0: Oh, for sure. Thank you.
1: Thanks for having me. Uh, I want to ask you two very crafty questions. I think that... Yikes. Something, Ed, that... And we should talk in a minute about your background in the theater. Something I think that you are really great at as a writer that I feel I am always trying to learn from you is these sort of big, dramatic moves that characters can make that have consequences i think as a myself as a writer i tend to tend to say wrapped up in my characters heads and you and you always have your characters really um making really serious moves and i think that that at the end of the story with the um, possible pregnancy is one and then earlier i i was so struck by the moment when he shows her the pictures that he'd taken of her because that felt like a risk for him to take also because she could have reacted very negatively to that like oh you're a creepy voyeur goodbye
0: obviously part of him feels that he is a creepy
1: voyeur yeah and so i guess my question is how, how in 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 terms of in 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 drafting a story do those do those moves come to you naturally or are they a result of a lot of trial and error
0: yes and yes um. I'm always conscious that I want to try and make things as physical as I can. I want, especially the important moments, and that is that is certainly from the theater, that I'm, you know what the directing textbooks would call pantomimic dramatization, that I, that I want you know to come down to uh, some kind of to physical action or to, to an object. You know, like like having sex with the intent to have a baby, that's physical. That's 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 a very committed physical action. I'm I'm reluctant to try and write a moment like that and convey something important through a delicate tonal shift in the character's thought. I, I probably just feel that I can't, I probably can't pull it off that way. So I've got to, you know, I've, I've got to find a hammer and a nail somehow.
1: Well, and also the world that you portray in this story and a lot of your other stories is not necessarily a world of delicate tonal shifts. I mean, there's a really wonderful... New York effrontery to a lot of your characters and narrators where they are going to make bold gestures and say what's on their minds? That's the world that I lived in. I didn't,
0: you know, um, again, I, I worked in the building trades. I, I made furniture. I made cabinets. Um, the Most of the people I knew were <laughs> very outspoken. If they didn't like something, they told you. Uh, you know, there was lots of curse words. And I, you know, I, I lived, that was, uh, I like people, um, I like people wear their emotions on their sleeve. I like people who tell you what they think. I, I, like, um, I like people who are not afraid to t- say they don't like something. Um, you know, every once in a while, um, I'll, get, I'll get an email from somebody, out, now that I'm living in California, and it'll suggest that we have coffee or lunch. And I sit there staring at it, trying to figure out if they actually want to have coffee with me or not. Because the answer is not always Yes. In New York, if nobody says, nobody asks you for coffee, if they don't want to actually have coffee with you, so I
1: feel I feel I have to, I'm trying to learn a subtle, more subtle language out here. Sifting the tea leaves of the literary academic world. <laughs> um, I had said earlier I had two craft questions I wanted to okay. ask you. The second one I wanted to ask was about the close third person, mm. which I know is something that you emphasize a lot with your students, mm-hmm. and I think that this story makes really beautiful use of both distance and intimacy with Stephanie. When you describe her as a robust, slightly doughy 41, that feels like an outside narrator's voice. And yet we have many other sentences that feel very much like they're filtered through her perspective and her her self-awareness. What is it about the third person that appeals to you? As a writer,
0: um, the model for this story is Anton Chekhov's great, great story, "The Lady with the Dog," which I teach to every beginning fiction class as an example of how to, of the control of the third person um, and of narrative distance. And I am attempting. I'm very kind, if you if you look at the first paragraph of my story and the first paragraph of that story, you'll see uh, how cl- how close it is, at least in the beginning. Um but the ability to to move in and away, um, to move towards to, to, to heat up and then cool down heat up and cool down, to me, I think is the essence of, of fictional storytelling, or at least fictional storytelling in in the realistic vein. And, you know, the, the narrative of that story is cool and only apparently dispassionate. But deeply, deeply human, deeply cares about you know somehow there's a there is a sensibility, there is a uh, an, uh, you know a shadowy awareness in that story that is so knowing and um, so attuned to the pain of the people in the story. And that was at least, you know, a, I wanted to use the third person in in that way. And I'm very consciously modeling, imitating, uh, uh, you know, on, on the work of, uh, of the master there.
1: Well, and I think that knowingness and, and maturity in the narrative voice also seems to manifest in the quickness and conciseness of the narration. This feels like a narrator who knows how human beings interact and doesn't need to belabor certain points. It assumes maybe a certain emotional maturity on the reader's part as well. And I, I I noticed, for instance, that after he makes the gesture of showing her the photographs, there's no internal agonizing on her part. She leads him to her door, and they have sex. We're sort of meant to infer that she is okay with this. And I think that that sort of fleetness shows a lot of trust in your reader. He's shown her that he's really seen
0: her. And I think in other drafts, I do have, in, there is internality of her saying, he she realized that even though this was creepy, and perhaps he had some sort of strange sexual fixation, and perhaps was even exoticizing her, that still this kind of, you know, this and um, all that just got cut. I just kept on seeing that it wasn't necessary. That any, you know, I, I think, as you say, a reasonable person, oh, Whatever I think of this, this guy's taking really good pictures of me. He, there must be something in him that's something. He must be attracted to me on some meaningful level.
1: And that's also something that the third person affords you is moments when you're very close to the character and moments when you have to infer what they're thinking and feeling.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that all the crafts book will say that you, that you must give the reader work to do.
1: Thank you, Ed, so much for being here. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Off the Page is produced by the Stanford Storytelling Project and the Creative Writing Program. This episode is produced by Jackson Roach, Megan Kalfas, Alec Glassford, Aparna Verma, Sienna White, Aaron Wu, Adesua Agbenile, and Kathy Wong. Thanks also to Jonah Willingans. Thanks to Ivan Boland, Christina Ablaza, and Osei Jackson at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. For more Stanford Writing, author events, and workshops, visit creativewriting.stanford.edu and storytelling.stanford.edu. I'm Mark Lebowski. Thanks for listening.